0: Um, my name is C.D. and I'm from Statesboro, Georgia, the a. a capital of the world, we
1: think. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and I'm glad to be I never know how this thing. Let me get through my minutes. I, I want to thank you for asking me. I appreciate it. It's an honor for me to be here. And for goodness sakes, don't call me if you don't want me to come, because anybody that knows me knows I'll do just exactly that. This is a part of my life. This is what I prayed to God. That if I could get sober, that I would do what I could to carry the message. And this is what I've been doing now for almost 20 years. I never know how this talk's going to come out. And some people here say, well, C.D., you didn't tell so-and-so, and you didn't tell this. I don't know, really. It's according to how I get you with me and how the thing gets going, what's going to come out of it. Really. I never know, because I don't think I got here by accident. I got here because the good Lord got my attention. It's the way i feel. And I think most of you who are alcoholics got here, you didn't come here. You just didn't happen to come in to I don't believe anybody gets here. Now, early in my AA career, in my alcoholic career, I had got to try to get my attention. I didn't pay much attention to them. I, I had to leave my wife at home, and I miss her very much. I usually have her sitting right there because she can take my inventory when I get through talking. But early in my drinking career, I came in one afternoon from work and was getting
1: undressed
0: and fixing to take a shower in. And a chest of drawers, I had a nickel-plated Colt 45 revolver that was loaded. And as I was fixing to take off my clothes to take a shower, my wife reached up, opened the door and pulled out this nickel-plated 45, cocked it, pointed at me, and said, tell me all about it. And let me tell you, folks, if you want to go crazy, you get to wonder what it was. I didn't know what it was. And the computer began to spin in my brain, and I knew I was facing eternity. I don't know if you all know how to or not, but I knew I was fixing to go to hell wide open right quick. I could already see the amulets, and everything coming after me. And I began to do some things that I became very good at later. I began to cry and to beg and to pray. And I got down on my knees and rolled around in the floor. When I told Lott, I said, Don't shoot me with that pistol. You'll hurt me. You know. <laughs> and of y'all know anything about forty-five? You know it'll kill you.
1: Now
0: there's two things a woman will kill you about, and the first and all of you men know, and the second one is her children. And I learned, <laughs> I learned early in my age career. I cut out number one, and I didn't bother out his children. They become her children when you become an alcoholic. I don't know why. But those are my children, you know. Don't you say nothing to them. And I didn't bother anybody. I'm one of the few that. As far as I know, I, I never laid a hand on my wife. The reason I didn't was by, by, by reason that 45 deal. I never, I never touched on it in my entire life. I thank God for this today. Now, she walked up on old dad a little bit, but I never did lay a hand on
1: her.
0: I didn't start out in life to become an alcoholic. That wasn't my ambition. God, nobody has that ambition. I wanted to do big things. I wanted to be governor of the state of
1: Georgia. And I still think I'd have been a better
0: governor than a lot of them we've had down there. And I'm I'm thinking about running when I retire from the highway department where I'm now an poet, And I, I I do a lot of talking up and around the Atlanta area. And I tell them, I said, if the alcoholics would vote for me, I'll be elected. Sure as the world. Lord, Lord.
1: <laughs> the
0: little girl that I married, I met her my senior year in high school. And the girl, at the time I laid eyes on her, I said, that's for me. Right there. I saw her in the grocery store. I said, that's for me. And I took out after her took me five years to catch a marry. I married my senior in-law, school. Went into World War II and became a fighter pilot. I flew P-40, early part of the war, P-47s later on. Came out of World War II. Went to work for the government as an attorney. Continued to drink liquor with no pattern to it at all, that such. I don't know how y'all feel about it. I never did like liquor. So I hear a lot of people say, well, I like to put it in my mouth and wall it around. I never did like this stuff. I had to work hard at becoming an alcoholic. I had to work hard at becoming a drinker because the stuff wasn't good I mean, I didn't like the first drink. I didn't like the last drink. But I worked at it real hard, and I became good at it. My wife used to compliment me on the fact that I was a good drinker. She said, C.D., you drink like a gentleman. You know, you hold out the chair for me. You open the door for me to get in the car. You conduct yourself as a gentleman, and this was a greatest compliment she could have paid me the fact that I drank like a junk. and I said well if they ever get like old Johnny old Bob Bob, I ever get drunk and that ugly I'll quit you know, i quit right down and there I said I'll be through and that's the way I felt about it now we drank at office parties that's the way we worked and I know one time we decided to go to one of these parties and not drink we said let's go and see what happens so we went to the party and everybody got to drinking and beating each other on the back and telling the jokes over and over and I told I must have had 15 cocos and four packs of cigarettes and I told her I said that's not for me. I said, if we go another party, let's drink liquor and join the crowd. And so we did. We began to do the same things they did. I continued to fly for the National Guard after World War II, one of these weekend warriors dudes. I don't know any y'all know anything thing about the weekend warriors. Now, we're supposed to be training, and I wonder now today what we were training for, but we're supposed to be going out training to stay proficient in the case they call us back on active duty. And I'd, I would do this. I'd fly it one weekend a month and keep my flying time in, and we They'd us to get together and we'd fly all over the countryside. We'd go to Dallas, or Miami, or Washington, DC, wherever what we call a good town was, and, and you guys know what I'm talking about, where a good town we drink a lot of liquor and have a lot of fun. And this is what we began to do. And I'd get away from out, and I'd get to Washington somewhere and I'd get weathered. I was bad about weathering in all the time, and I don't <laughs> I didn't know a lot about weather, and she came to the country and I could call her back from wherever I was. I said, Honey, the weather's terrible in Dallas, you can't get off the ground. She said, stay there, don't take off in bad weather, don't get off. going <laughs> to be shining just like it was today, you know, just as bad as it could be, and I'd be living in the hotel or the motel drunk as a tutor. I'd come dragging in to you and tell her what a hard time. She'd say, you look bad. I said, honey, been hang around the field two days. You're trying to get airborne. You're standing out waiting for the weather to break
1: so
0: to come up." <laughs> I was in Washington one time, drunk, six of us up there drunk. Some of them went back, but I elected to stay, and I called out and told I was weathered in me and this other guy. We've flown six aircraft up there and landed. And Dick's wife happened to build the house when I called out her and I told her the weather was bad. And she said, "Stay there, you know, don't take off." I said, "Okay." And Mary said, "Let's call Garvin Air Force Base and find out what the weather is. Just see if it's telling the truth." I didn't know how to cut out anyway. Could pick up the phone, called Garvin Air Force Base. Get the weather officer on the phone, asked him what the weather is in Washington D.C. He said the weather's clear and the visibility is unlimited. I think today. And I came back two days later. I confronted me with this information. Said mayor called in and said the weather was clear in Washington, D.C. Sunday. I said, Ida, you can't find out what the weather is in Washington, D.C. That's top secret, and you're going to get me in trouble if you go over there. I all these high-classified missions we were flying, I said, man, you're going to get me in a lot of trouble. All this is top secret, all this going around the countryside we were doing. And boy, it was secret. We were trying to keep it secret My why, you know, what was going on. I was called back on active duty in 1950 Nicole in the Korean conflict. Put, put the uniform back on. We came up to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, Pope Air Force Base there. I was attached to headquarters there. And there I ran into a lieutenant colonel who liked the same things that I did. Now I was not a good officer. Don't get the wrong idea. I was not a good officer. I was a good pilot, but I wasn't a good officer. We like to do the same things, and we began to go around the countryside putting on firepower demonstrations for the army, showing what we could do with our aircraft, dropping napalm and bombs, and showing the senators and representatives around the country what we could do. We drank like a lot of liquor and done a lot of things unbecoming to a madman. is about the only one thing I, way I can properly explain this. And, and, and we enjoyed our fellowship together, and we'd leave our wives back at Folk Air Force Base while we ginned around all over the countryside. And I got orders to go overseas as a jet fighter pilot. And the colonel didn't want me to go because he needed me. He said, you're a good officer. And that wasn't the reason he needed me at all. He liked to do what I liked to do, and that was our connection. So he went to the Pentagon and tried to get me deferred from going to Korea, and he couldn't do it. And I got orders to go overseas as a jet fighter pilot, but I had orders to go to Langley Field for staging in 30 days. And so he gave us a farewell party at his home there on the base. We went over to his house, and there's plenty of lifting. Everybody was drinking and hugging and kissing and taking pictures, and telling wild stories. He came over to me about 4 o'clock in the morning when the party really got going, he said, CD, can you fly a B-25? I said, I'm the best B-25 pilot you've ever seen. He said, how about taking me down to Lawson Field, Columbus, Georgia, in the morning. I said, I'll be glad to. I'd overheard part of the conversation, and when he walked off, she came on, she said, you can't fly no b 25 you are a fighter pilot. only thing you know how to do is fly a fighter. I said, either he's drunk and I'm drunk and nobody's going anywhere, don't worry about it. The party broke up about daylight and we went home. He lived about two blocks from where the Colonel lived there on the base, and I was in there getting undressed to go to bed. And he drove up across the lawn, and his Cadillac pulled up right next to the one, and blowed the horn, hollered, let's
1: go! I slid
0: the uniform on, staggered back out the door, and got in his car. We drove down to Pope Air Force Base there at Fort Bragg and pulled up in front of Operations and Park. Then I got out of the car and started an operation, and I looked right out in front of Operation and left of a B-25. I had seen a B-25. I knew what one looked like. <laughs>
1: Because I'd been all
0: over the country, and I'd I'd recognized a different aircraft. I knew them all, and that was one part of We went on in operations and filled out a clearance to go down to Lawson Field at Columbus, Georgia. Came back out, and the sergeant came up and said, Colonel, aircraft ready to go. We walked out to the aircraft, and I'd never been in one in my life. And when we got out there, there's a ladder that comes down between the main gear. And I got there, and I said, Colonel, you go first. He said, no, you go first. And so I climbed up the ladder, and I got up in the aircraft, and it was a VIP airplane. They'd been flushed up. My seat's in and I sit down on the back seat, and he came up through the belly of the aircraft, and he got up there. He said, get up front and let's go. And I thought, well, this thing has gone far enough. He's drunk, and I'm drunk. You know, it's time to call the deal off. And I said, uh, Douglas, I can't fly no B-25. He said, hell, you said you could. Let's go.
1: <laughs>
0: I thought the sergeant was going to faint, you know. If I'd been here, I'd quit. I said, sergeant, can you start the engines?" He said, yes, sir. I said, get in the right seat. You got in the right seat. I got in the left seat. We buckled up. He cranked the aircraft up, and I looked around this B-25 at a of mess I said, well, it all looks all right to me, and I looked at it. I said, where well, does the fuel go? He said, it all feeds into one main tank, and we pull off the main. You don't have to worry about the fuel. I called a tower for taxi instructions. taxed the aircraft out to the end of the runway, reached up and caught the brakes from my toes, and took the problems and pushed them forward, and everything went up into the green, as we say in the air force. It all went up in the green. I said, well, it ought to fly. I
1: called
0: the tower for Take off instruction. They cleared me on active runway, and I took a B25 off, having never been in one in my entire life. Three people on board. Not a damn soul on board could fly it. Now you think about that. On the way down to Lawson Field, if you're an alcoholic, you'll understand this. Let the diet out. Panic set in. You know. <laughs> When I realized that I was a pilot, you know, that I was a guy flying the thing and I was responsible, I became terribly agitated. Okay. I didn't know what to do. I said, go back and wake that colonel up and tell him to come up and help me land this thing. So that wasn't exactly where I put it. I said, help me land this aircraft. And he went back and woke the colonel up, he come back up and pull up my headset. He said the colonel said it in over in the, the run away at about a hundred and twenty-five, chop the power and it should land. <laughs> I did exactly that, made a beautiful landing on the B-25, we got out of the B-25, went to the officer's club, had a few drinks, and I felt like I could fly it back, and I flew it back to Pope Air Force Base.
1: <laughs>
0: this is one of many incidents that certainly could have been very tragic. If you had anything happen out of the it certainly would have been tragic for everybody concerned, and you know that as well as I do. I went on overseas as a jet fighter pilot, left my wife pregnant with my third child, and I went in there. Southern part of Japan, Pukio, Down out of Air Force Base, I went down there. Let me tell you, if you're an alcoholic, you'll understand me again here. My part in the drinking changed right now, I recall it. Very vividly, I, I began to drink liquor now because I needed it, not because I wanted it. I got away and I was scared. I didn't want to die. I didn't want to fight. I wanted to go home, and I realized I had to fight, and I had to fly, and I began to drink liquor now because I needed it. I'd wake up every morning and put my feet on that cool concrete floor and reach down and grab a 40 ounce jug of Sigam's bill, which is a full quart and a half a pint, cost $1.50, and I'd take me four or five slugs out of that and we'd go down for briefing for the mission. And all of you who have, seen the milit- who have not been in the military know about briefings. A guy gets up here and he down the map, takes a phone and tells you where he's doing. Now, he'd tell you where you're going, what you're going to do, and he'd always say, now, if you get shot down, and boy, that would tear me completely up. <laughs> now, if you get shot down, have yes, what you do, you know, and i said sit and i almost come out of my skin. Now, I don't know any of y'all in the Air Force not, but if you, you are, you know this. All Air Force, all pilots in the Air Force were issued two ounces of whiskey permission alone. You were supposed to take it when you got back. It was furnished by the government. The government paid for it. It was sorry, liquor. But well, you punch it. but what well, we had a coffee on right at the back of the briefing room and held about 200 cups of coffee and had combat liquor. We were supposed to drink the coffee going and the liquor coming back. But I never did see anybody drink a cup of coffee. I don't know if there's any coffee in the urn or not. We'd all take a quick couple of shots and get in that F-84, which I was flying and go north into Korea. And I could stay up an hour and 50 minutes. And I'd go up with anywhere from five to seven drinks under my belt. And even with that amount of liquid, when I turn on hundred percent oxygen, this is where it would clear my vision and I could see. Now Jet aircraft is the easiest aircraft in the world to fly, I was talking to somebody today about it. If you get the fire burning in you tell you it'll go, it's just about that simple. You know? And it's air conditioned, you don't have any torque, you don't have any noise, and once you go up about you know about four hundred miles an hour, you walk off and leave the noise, and you just sit in here a little high home over here and you can set up there just as drunk as a cooper. I've been asleep on them many times <laughs> long, you know. But even under those conditions, above the 38th parallel, if they started shooting at night, I'd get upset. (laughs) Now, I come back and lied a lot about what I did over there, uh, like anybody else, about what all I shot at what I shot at. But let me tell you the truth of the thing, really. I didn't shoot at anybody unless he got in my way of me getting home. That's what I
1: about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'd get up there and kick off them two 1,000-pound bombs, and I'd hit for home, and if I didn't fire a gun unless somebody got in my way. I'd come out there like a homesick angel going
1: over.
0: And even under those conditions, I was scared of it. I had a friend from Columbia, South Carolina, and they were here. He got bouncing. These were us and what we'd do is jets and our bombs a lot of times and run like the devil. And he got caught up there, and he was hollering over the radio, help, 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 and finally... The boy had a, a really southern ball, and everybody recognized who it was. Hell, hell, I got mates going to shoot me down and somebody said, shut up and die like a man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I got home and landed to take you in as we were flying out of take I was sitting on it when Pat came in and he had hundred and eighty-something holes in his aircraft. He said, how come you didn't come back? I said, hell, I was out of there. I wasn't about to go back in there. There's one place I could pinpoint where I crossed the line. It was while I was over there. I hope we have some Catholic people here because of I'm very fond of the Catholic faith. I'm a Baptist, by the way.
1: <laughs>
0: but, uh, I ran into a Father Ford over there, Catholic minister. We became very good friends. He was a big red-faced Irishman, about six foot four, and left to drink liquor in me. Uh, every time anybody gets killed, he'd go down and have mass mask for him. And I like the Padre. I called him Padre, and we drank a lot of liquor together, and did a lot of talking. And uh, I began to hear me something to know, so they sent me back to be operating on it in Japan. I asked Father Ford. I said, "Have you got any connections over at Nagoya?" And he said, "Well, no, I don't know, but I'll call." And he called back and got a hold of a Catholic priest in his hospital. He said, "I'm sending Lieutenant Collins back over. He's coming over to be operated on." He said, "He's a badger. He's hopeless. Don't try to convert him. But bring him some liquor while he's in the hospital." <laughs> And the day I checked in the hospital, this major came in with a cross, and he brought me a fifth of luck every day I was in the hospital, and I will be eternally grateful to the Catholic faith for that. (laughs) Let me tell you one thing. Being a Baptist, you'd have never got a drop out of Baptist. You'd have died up there as a Baptist, I
1: guarantee
0: I came back from overseas, and I finished my tour, and I came back, and I came back by boat, rather than plane. Because I knew I had trouble, and I wanted to get off of luck. I didn't want to come home in this condition. I had a son born while I was in Korea, and I wanted to be sober when I got home with the and the children. So I requested transportation back by boat, but I didn't know what would happen to me. So I, I threw away half my clothes, and I packed 12 40-ounce jugs and towels and put them in my B-4 bag and got on board the Navy ship with this. And I was drunk all the way back to Yokohama to San Francisco. I got in San Francisco drunk, called my wife, and told I was getting out of the military as soon as possible. And I'll be down in Savannah, Georgia, and she and the two girls, they met me down there. And I had left the States weighing about 135 pounds, and I had drank so much liquor, I don't know y'all ever seen anybody who bloated. I swelled up like a fish. I had blown, up my cheeks, got real big, and I could look straight out and see them, and I had a great big hammer my mustache, and it curled out right in front of my eyes. And I'd eat so many sardines and that I'd swelled up.
1: And when I and a
0: few little girls, when I got off the airplane in Savannah, Georgia, and they met me, they didn't recognize me. And I told, I told my wife, I said, hey, this is, this is CD, you know. And then when she recognized me, she wasn't too eager, you know, then. <laughs> and, and I didn't feel too good about, I had been over there fighting the war, and I thought they oughta, I ought to have got a better welcome than I did. And On the way home, I stopped and got a fifth of liquor. And I was drunk the first time I laid eyes on my son, CD the third. For this, I'm not proud. This is some of the things that happened to me. Went back to Atlanta, Georgia, I took my, job, my job, job back with the federal government as a lawyer. I hope none of y'all work for the government. I wouldn't want to hurt your feelings about that. I worked with them for a number of years, and they're a wonderful organization. But if you work with them as an attorney, you can work with them bump. The only requirement they have is that you do not fall out of your chair.
1: <laughs>
0: and I used to sit locked in a lot of days, I'd just lock in like I was riding a horse, you know, and hold on because I didn't want to fall out because one guy fell out and they fired him, and I knew they would fire him, so I'd, I'd hold on. I wouldn't even go to the bathroom. I, you know, I afraid I'd fall, so I'd just sit and lock in that chair.
1: <laughs>
0: and I'd get me a big case, a great big pick, I, and you can't tell about production in the legal field. And I'd sit there and I'd just turn a few pages every day. I wasn't doing anything. i just flip a few pages like I'd work and nobody knew the difference. We began to have an awful lot of trouble, my wife and myself. And this kind of trouble, if you're married to an alcoholic or all you want, you can read your own story into this. We, don't, we say we tell it. What happened and what it's like, you know, and the whole bit. We don't do that. I couldn't tell it, really. Because what happened to me was a very terrible and tragic experience, really. Thank God I can laugh about it now and you can laugh with me. Thank God we can because I cannot tell it as it was. In the beginning, when I first talked to Nadia, I began to, I told it like it was and I would break up and you would break up and a whole bunch of mine up crying because this is the way it was, really. So I tell it now in a light of vain, I enjoy being so, I enjoy it. So I, I switch to telling it and laughing about it, because thank God I can laugh about it me and I can She thoroughly enjoys going and listening. She's a member of Alcoholics and Arms, by the way. She told me to be sure and tell you that. Things begin to happen to us that we said never would happen to us. We began to do things we said we never would do. We would never cuss or fuss in front of children. We'd never do these things, and yet we began to do it. She began to raise holy hell. Out of desperation trying to do something for me, she quit drinking liquor and tried to do something for me. And you know, what? your wife quits drinking, boy, you do done in trouble right then and there, cause you can't say much. As long as I could get a cup of pops in her, she couldn't say anything to me. But once she cut it off, then the, the pressure was on for old dad to straighten up, and I could not do it. I'd leave work every day. I'd leave going with a drink of liquor in my hand and go to work under these conditions every day. I'd have tried to live with me. She tried to talk to me. She was unable to do it. I began to stay away from home a lot, not come home at all. And she left me and divorced me for habitual drunkenness. It's a matter of public record in the Bullock County courthouse. Many of y'all ever in Statesboro, Georgia, and you happen to be in the courthouse, for goodness' sake, look in the record room because it's a matter of public record. I'm not ashamed or embarrassed about it. I see it a lot myself. I'm in there a lot, and I whip over and look at it. Look, I'm registered right there. <laughs> so, this girl left me and divorced me. And Let me tell you one thing: if you're an alcoholic like I was. You need a wife. You don't function well without a wife. Who tells you to bathe? Who tells you to get your clothes clean? I began to have all kinds of problems once I left. I realized very quickly that this was not what I wanted. You know, I said, Lord, what in the world am I going to do now? You know, I began to get threadbare. I was, I was beginning to look like the devil everywhere, and I began to smell. You know, and all kinds of things began to happen to me. The office consolidated one in Philadelphia, and I elected to go to Birmingham, Alabama. And Birmingham, Alabama, is a drunkard's paradise. I don't know any of y'all have been there, but if they ever start by drinking, I'm going back to Birmingham, because you can't beat Birmingham. You can buy it in restaurants and drug stores you in and, right and you can and get these miniatures. You want to beat out and go. You can't do that in Georgia, but you can in Alabama. I got over in Birmingham with Social Security, and naturally I was broke, but I, I got over and I knew I was going to need credit and I needed friends. <clears throat> so 50 Steps right out across the Social Security office. is a social grill. It's still there today. John Moon was over there two years ago, and the place is still, they're still running the same guy, Louie the Greek. I got there, and I went over to see you and I said, Louie, listen, my name is C.D. Collins, and I have this job, and I have this title, and I make this amount of money, and my wife is suing me for divorce, and all of my funds are tied up, you know. It wasn't any fun. but I told her, and I said, I'm going to need a little credit, because Louie is so little. I tipped all the waitresses a dollar every time they waited on me the first few times, because I needed them, too. And you know if you work for the government, you get the coffee break at 10 o'clock in the morning. You get one at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And all the lawyers would adjourn. I'd so scared to walk away and get around this big table and drink coffee. Now, what the deal I had with the waitress, she'd put me a double shot in a coffee cup with a saucer with milk on the side, served it to him, and I'd sit there and blow that stuff out there and sip that
1: liquor. And sip that liquor. <laughs> now,
0: nobody knew that I was drinking. At least I didn't think they did. And that's the way I'd get my double shot at 10 o'clock. I'd get another double shot at noon when I ate that. I'd get another double shot at 3 o'clock. And I could get through the day. And at 5 o'clock, I'd do back in there and then get a half a pint, which is most restaurants could sell. Costs cost $2.20 for a half a pint of Sigma's And I'd sit there and get dead dog drunk. Every day, I'd do the same thing. Now, I would not call my wife or children at all until I got dead dog drunk. And then I would get on the phone and bring me in Birmingham, Alabama, and call my wife in Statesboro, Georgia, and charge it to my sister's phone in Atlanta. You try that
1: first. <laughs> You
0: can't do it, so I tried it, but I did it drunk. I charged 700 and something dollar like phone calls to my sister in Atlanta, Georgia. I'd call out her. She'd answer the phone. She'd tell me what kind of individual I was, and you can read your own words into this, using a lot of adjectives, and she'd hung up, and I'd say, Operator, in emergency, dial her back. She'd dial her back, and I'd keep on with this deal, But I got her to put those children on the phone in Statesboro, Georgia, and the kids would be on the phone in Statesboro, Georgia crying, and I'm in Birmingham, Alabama, drunk and crying. Now, this is the way it was. I believe in my own personal case, this is my own personal belief, that the good Lord gets your attention one way or another, and he began to try to get my attention, he began to tap me lightly on the head, and I didn't pay anything, and it got harder and harder and harder. This is my own personal feeling about it today. I began to get all kind of trouble from my job and everybody. I was late with a child support payment, I got a letter from my attorney, quote some law to me, and it's this, this this hurt my feelings, and he quoted a to me, and I wrote him back said, You can't get blood from a turnip. As of this date, I've quit my job. I'm no longer employed, and I do not intend to work again as long as I live. And I thought he would accept the word of a gentleman.
1: <laughs> About
0: two weeks later, two men walked into office in Birmingham, Alabama, and said they'd like to see Mr. Collins. They came back, and the secretary introduced them, and they told me their names. And they didn't announce, they didn't say who they were with. I think most alcoholics are guilty of this. We assume a lot. I assume they were social security downtown. They said, would you mind riding downtown with us? I said, not at all. I'll be glad." I
1: told
0: them, Suchy, I as I'll be back in a few minutes. They want to discuss the case on social security. Evidently something they can't solve, and I'll go down there with them. I'll be back in a few minutes. We went out and got in a plain black fort and drove down the middle of Birmingham, Alabama, and pulled up in front of this huge gray building, got out of the car and started in the door. When we started in the door, one of them dropped behind me. When he dropped behind me, it only only what was happening to me. And I screamed like a stuck pig. I hollered, ah! he just grabbed it right in his arm and ushered me into the Birmingham
1: jail.
0: I know none of y'all have ever been locked up, but I have, and I thank God <laughs> for it. I thank God for it because it's the most impressive thing to me. It's hard to tell yourself you're a big shot looking through splattered sunshine. I don't know why you've ever done it or not. The first question they ask you in a bullpen, I don't know why, the time you walked in that bullpen about 150 other guys, the first question is, what are you in for? I
1: said,
0: child support. And some jerk said, well, Judge Smith will give you five years of hard labor for that. i like to bring you right there that
1: <laughs> A professional
0: bondsman came down and got me out. I walked off my job. I never went back to the office. I walked off my job. I had 14 years of service with. Called my father in La Georgia, and he came and got me. And took me home to my mother. Let me tell you one thing. My mother had always blamed my wife. She said, the reason I drank liquor was because the my said, anybody have to, to let you live without So I didn't have out of that, I went home to mother, and this is first time mother ever had her number one son back. And I was there only a short period of time for mother find out what she had. And, time, <laughs> and all of y'all had people go into conference in the next room about what you are going to do in this room, you know. And they were in, one moment I heard my mother tell my daddy, she said, Clifford, said, I want you to load him up in that car and kill him to State for Georgia, and whatever it takes, I want you to get out of here to take him back. Because she's the only one meaner up to live with him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so my dad had loaded
0: me up in a car and brought me down to Statesburg, Georgia, to see this woman that had divorced me. And let me tell you, this is a story that's happening. I won't go into a lot of detail on this, but this is some kind of mess that you've ever seen. We began to go into the conference. And let me tell you what it all about. Every night and then it gets so heated, she'd grab the phone and she said, I'm going to have you locked up right so here in Statesburg. I said, lock me up, because if you're going to put me on the chain gang, I want to go on the chain gang here, where when I come by on that truck every day, I can wave at my children. You know what I get? I was gone as far as I was going to go. When I got back to her, I meant I was going to stay there, and it boiled down to this. Now, if I was here, I wouldn't tell. There's one part I will not tell another year because it's too embarrassing, boy. It boiled down to a money transaction. My daddy feed her to remarry me. <laughs> <laughs> Strictly money. But you don't. She said, "I got no use for you now." She had all these adjectives on it. Said, "You're sorry," and the word "sorry," if you're from South Georgia, you'll understand. It has a special connotation from the South call me anything, but don't call me sorry. I won't take that today. Don't call me sorry. You can call me anything else you want to do, but not sorry. She said, you're sorry. I said, I'm not sorry. She said, yes, you are sorry. you saw it Anyway,
1: <laughs> we
0: finally agreed to be remarried.
1: <laughs>
0: we were remarried on a Saturday
1: morning, out on
0: the main street, I don't 3 or one right in front of Hal Johnson restaurant. I don't even really know all I've ever been to a second match. It wasn't a festive occasion. Nobody would talking. <laughs> It's, it's kind of like a funeral. I don't know. I, like, <laughs> I didn't want to go out, there. Nobody wanted to go, you know. We had to go. And I don't know if you've, ever been, if you've ever been down the island with three kids. Watch out, she's she got all three children coming down the island, And The little boy kept saying, Mama, what's going on?
1: What's going on? <laughs> Terribly,
0: terribly embarrassing. You know, we laugh. Thank God we can't. Well, this is the most humiliating thing ever. But I had to go through this thing in order to get back in the house. I was willing to do anything.
1: Now, we had discussed
0: my liquor-drinking, naturally. And we had come to this to see. She said, well, what about the liquor-drinking? I said, don't ever mention it again. I don't want to hear anything about it. Don't ever mention liquor-drinking to me again. I'm too fast. I don't want to hear about it. We remarried. We come out of church. Our sisters take care of children. And we are going to sit down and get reacquainted really on account of us. Short deal down there, and <laughs> got in the car, and was going down the road. I said, listen, Ida, uh since we were remarried, you know, and this is our first day back together, and we were kind of on a honeymoon, and of course, she wasn't on that honeymoon kick at all, but I said, wouldn't it be odd right if I had a drunk liquor today? And of course, she didn't know what she had. She said, Yeah, if you don't get drunk, Bill, be honest. And I stopped and got a fifth of liquor. And I was dead dog drunk for <laughs> in two hours after I got in Savannah, Georgia. And the honeymoon was a complete bust. Nothing. You know <laughs> we came back the next day ashamed and embarrassed about the whole deal. Very much upset about it. I went to work with the highway department where I'm now employed. For a short period of time, I did not drink. Now, i get get on some nitty gritty stuff. Now, for a short period of time, I did not drink. I took a drink of liquor one night at a fish up where we closed out a job. I took one drink of liquor. I came home and told Ida, I had a drink tonight. She said, it's all right. You're not drunk. But let me tell you what happens now. This is one year prior to coming out on it's an The next morning, rather than go to work, I get up and go down to the county line. Our county is dry, 12 miles away, and I get dead dog drunk right in the middle of the day for no reason whatsoever. Every time I take a drink from here on out, I wind up dead dog drunk. I cannot control it at all. I began to do anything in order to continue to drink. I began to write bad checks. I began to steal whatever was necessary. I began to let the contact get away with shoddy work, anything in order to stay drunk. I began to do these things. Things went from bad to worse. I would realize that I was going to get down, and I would gather up all the liquor that I could and try to have enough to where I would have something at home. I would found out, not out of any kindness towards me, but she found out if she cut the food off, she could bring a drunk, a clothes, and the way she would do this, and think with me, please, we're the most sensitive people in the world. I say that in all honesty. I am today. I can't take rejection. I can't take criticism. I'm sensitive. I want everybody to love me. And the way I would do it, I'd come in from work drunk. I'd be at home drunk, and she'd say. She'd get stuff on the table, and she'd say, Come on, you old drunken bums. You didn't buy any of it, but I'll let you eat some of it. (laughs) Who's going to eat under those conditions? I (laughs) I said, That's the way you feel I won't eat now. Now, she was telling the truth. She had bought it. I hadn't bought anything but liquor. So I wouldn't eat, but three days of straight liquor, and then you wake up one morning, and nothing moves but your eyes. I don't know where you've been through this night. (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh, uh-oh, the drunk's over. Now, I never had the benefit of it. Aspirin tablets. A cool cloth vine with a jug of water and a pan to throw up in. Is the way I came off of my drunk. And that's a terrible experience. I'll tell you that. If you haven't been through it, you have missed something. For God's sakes, don't do it. It's awful. We had a lady who was looking after the children while out of work and made the living, and I was staying drunk. I had gotten to the point that I could no longer get bonded. left They would no longer take checks home. They wouldn't charge anything to me. They had checks floating everywhere. And I established credit with a bootlegger down on the Aditya River, which is about 15 miles north of Statesboro. And he made what we refer to as syrup liquor. I don't imagine y'all know anything about this up here in this part of the country. Rather than using sugar in corn brook, we refer to it, rather than using sugar as we know, it like we speak in our with, they use chain syrup. If you buy a lot of sugar in our neck of the woods, <clears> then <throat> the revenue people know who's making liquor, and they just go check where well, and say who's buying sugar? You know, they say, C.D. Collins. well, he's making liquor because so he's buying a lot of sugar. So they use cane syrup cream, to break the ferment and stuff, and to make this liquor, it's referred to as a syrup liquor. And it'd do the same thing as i bet your offer, old granddaddy, anything else. The only thing about it is you have trouble with it about getting it down and sticking. You have to go through a process. You take a drink and you... Get your breath <laughs> and, and if you'll ever get it to set, you know, so <laughs> you know, 30 seconds and get your breath, you can never get one breath in, you're on your way. You can't, I can't, I can But you'll you, you lose the first little pool of drinks, there ain't no way in the world now.
1: <laughs> and
0: when you press five, your clothes stick to you. <laughs> And the smell, I see somebody in the back, I believe, had some of this stuff. <laughs> and if you ever in South Georgia know, now, here's the way you spot a guy. And I saw a guy a years ago, coming down the road, saw the guy on the side, and knew what had happened to him. He's standing there doing this.
1: <laughs> and what he was
0: doing, the, the bumblebees in the nuts, they just threw out right in the mouth. You know? <laughs> <laughs> this, this stuff has such an odor, you know, and, and you got to spit out in the other guy's mouth. <laughs> you're knocking all the time. <laughs> and this is what I had gotten on this set looking on and if, this is when, and if you sleep on a mattress you have to throw the mattress away So I'd have moved me out of the house onto the back porch at this stage of the year. Looking at a little closet out there.
1: <laughs> and I, had
0: a, I had a little cot, a little canvas cot with a little, little lamp on top of it, set up a little, with a 40-watt bubble in it. And I had this thing on, and I'd, I'd burn this bubble 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, I'd be coming off to drink, and I'd have a YWS book, and I'd be on the same page, three days it was and I'd be on And, and the lady who was looking after the children while I work, she would come back and there was one little window to it and she'd keep in the window. I don't know why they wouldn't the door and look about it, but they'd look in the window. But I would tell they said, in the window. And
1: y'all
0: yeah, think women about this now. If you've been drunk a week, you don't have to breathe very often. You just take a little breath. You can wait a while and take another one. You, know, you don't need much air. You know, you're their in there real still. And then we would look in the window and she wouldn't see no movement. She'd run in and call out. She'd say, Miss Collins, he's dead today. You know. And I said, don't worry about him, we'll look about him when I get home. Don't worry. I said, I'll come on, and I'll say this. She going to go around and look through that little hole in the room, you know, and I said, "Sometimes she'd watch me for 30 minutes and said she wouldn't see any movement at all. I said, Rex, you see a slight movement coming." She said, and if he ain't dead, maybe you will be dead tonight, you know? She prayed to God that I would die, she said. She prayed every night that I'd die because she couldn't get rid of me. There's no way in the world to get rid of me, and she knew that. She prayed to God that he would take me because she knew that nobody else would have me. And this is the way things work. I would come through on the floor where I had fallen, and I would ask myself, what are you doing down here? And I would ask myself. I wouldn't know what else to talk to him. i talked to myself a lot. What are you doing after you fell?" And I said, Lord, if I ever get up me, I'll never do this again. I'll never do this again. And a week later, two weeks later, I'm laying in the same spot asking the same questions again. Now any of you that's been through this thing, you know what I'm talking about. I used to come through on the floor, on the floor and my two little girls out here, everybody tiptoed around, I don't know why. When daddy was drunk, I'd be laying in the living room, wherever it happened to be, and I'd hear the little girls kicking them out. And I'd be on the floor and I'd open the bottom eye, I don't know why I'd always open the bottom eye, I wouldn't open both eyes, open the bottom eye, when the little girls would come by and they'd go out the front door, I could see from their shoes, up to the bottom of the dresses, and I'd look at the worn-out shoes and those tattered dresses, and I'd have to get up off the floor and go back down to the county line 12 miles away and get drunk all over again because I could not live with what was happening to me. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is alcoholism. This This is what happens to all of us. When I come up there and look at the havoc I had created, I couldn't live with, and I'd have to go back on. At this stage of the game, the only peace I had at all was total thunder. Complete out. It was the only damn piece I had. And this is what I sought constantly. It was out, out, out. I wanted to get sober. I didn't know how. I had no information. Thank God today we have information, radio, TV, newspapers, AA, what have you, we've got it today that tells us what we can do about our problem. I had none. I didn't know where to turn. I went to church occasionally. And sometimes I'd perhaps take three or four drinks or liquor to go to church. And I'd go to church and sit there in the church hoping for flash of fire, clap of thunder, he would say something that made sense and I wouldn't want any more left. But it didn't happen that way. And I was embarrassed again in church because our church would not have condition this time and you'd be sitting in church and people would start sniffing and looking and finally zero around in on who it was. You know, and I got ashamed and embarrassed and I quit church. I asked Tyler to call the minister to come down and pray for me and he came down to my house one time. He prayed and I prayed and he got up and left and I took a drink a little bit just about in that order. I did not know where to turn for help. I was searching, but I did not know. While on a jump, I read something about alcoholics, anonymous, alcoholism. There was a clinic in Atlanta, Georgia, and I called my wife into the bedroom and told her, I said, I want want to go to this place. So she called my mother, and they came down to Atlanta, Georgia, and took me in the car and carried me and put me in this clinic. I stayed there for six weeks. There for the first time, I heard the word alcoholism, alcoholism. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, you can learn to live without drinking, but it will be the hardest thing you've ever done. Thank God they told me this, because had me not, I could not have made Could not have made it. They said, it's going to be hard, Stevie. I had the privilege of taking my inventory with a man by the name of Gene DeOves, who wrote for the Atlanta Journal. He's most like a saint of any man I have ever known. He was a minister and devoted the last 10 or 15 years of his life to helping the alcoholics. And I was in his office one day, and the reason I passed this on to you is a very personal thing for me, but I, I want to share this with you. I was in his office one day, and we were discussing, and I had put out the whole filthy mess. He's the only human being I have ever told it all to, and the only one I ever intend to. And when I told him, I thought probably he'd faint of something, but he didn't change the expression at all on his face, and he said, C.D., God will forgive you if you'll ask him earnestly and sincerely. He'll forgive you for what you've done. <coughs> but... You have got to forgive yourself. And this was a key to me. I don't know what it makes sense to you or not, but it was to me. He got on his knees on one side of the desk, and I got on mine on this side, and he prayed and I prayed. And I asked God in desperation to forgive me for what I had done to all of those children and to my mother and father and the friends that I had, and God forgave me. Because when I got up off my knees, I knew that something had happened to C.D. Collins, not whether or not I'd ever drink again. I didn't know this at all but I knew that something had happened to me because a burden had been lifted from my back. I felt like a new man, and I left the place coming back to South Georgia <laughs> to try to live without again. And let me tell you this, too. While I'm, sometimes I leave this out. While I was there in the clinic, I had decided that I would never be able to sober up and stay sober, so she had contacted a lawyer going to divorce me again. I came back to Statesboro, Georgia. I had to live in a basement of a hotel there, and she let me come around and see her and the children every day. And I went around to see and tried to talk to her and tell her something about what I had found out. And they had suggested Alcoholics Anonymous to me when I came out of this clinic. That I should go to A.E. There was no way in Statesboro, Georgia. The nearest one was about 55 miles away in Savannah, Georgia. And I didn't have any money and I didn't have any automobile. I tried to get it started and was unable to do it. I'd go around to see out and the children every day and talk to her and tell her what, told her what I had found out about myself and that I was going to try to live without drinking. She didn't buy any of it at all. She thought I was trying to con her. But I was very persistent. So one day after she had talked to a lawyer, I said, i let's do one thing. And let me interject this right now. If you had given our situation the things that had happened between me and this woman to the keenest brains in the world, I tried to get it started was unable to do it. I'd go around to see Ida and the children every day and talk to her and tell her what, told her what I had found out about myself and that I was going to try to live without drinking. She didn't buy any of it at all. She thought I was trying to con. Her. But I was very persistent. So one day after she had talked to a lawyer, I said, I'd just do one thing. And let me interject just right now. If you had given our situation, the things that had happened between me and this woman to the keenest brains in the world today and said, what would you advise these two people to do? They would have said, you should turn your back on one another, walk away, and never look back because you do not stand a chance. So Ida was going to divorce me again, and I said, before you do this, Ida, will you let's pray about it? And she didn't like this at all. She thought it was another act. She finally saw that I was sincere about it, and she agreed to go back in the back bedroom. We got on our knees. I prayed. She did not pray, but I asked God to advise us whether or not we should try to live together and look after these children or whether or not we should walk away from one another. And after I had prayed, we got up off our knees and looked at one another, and we knew we were going to try again. And she let me move back in the house with her and the children. I've been there ever since. A.A. was started, and we were asked to attend the first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. A lady, a non-alcoholic, got it started in Statesboro, Georgia. We were asked to attend the first meeting of A.A. in Statesboro, Georgia, and we attended. We were not ashamed or embarrassed to go. Thank God, somebody asked us to go somewhere. We attended, and we have been there ever since. This is almost 20 years ago now. Let me tell you a little bit about what A.A. does, and I'll get off this Mel Advanced part. another Advanced part. What A.A. has done for me and this woman. I was in there about five years, and Ida had a little trouble, and she said, we call our Dr. Buster. I don't call him Dr. go He's a personal friend. She said, I have to go see Buster. I'm having some problems. So she went to see Buster, and she come back, and Buster informed her, said, all women your age, go through this thing. Don't worry about it. You're at that age now. So we waited a while, and Ida went back to see Buster. And when she went back to see Buster, Buster informed her that she was pregnant. And let me tell you, folks, this will test whether or not you've got the
1: AA
0: <laughs> I had two girls in college. Two girls in college and a little boy in grammar school and my wife who is making more money than I'm making comes up with. And we didn't know what in the world was gonna to happen to the college plan We could see everything going down to drink. But the good Lord smiled on us again. We didn't miss a meal, we had another son. He's now fourteen years old. I saw him this morning when I left. Had another son born into the family and he's been the greatest thing that's ever happened to me and this woman. Nobody's missed a meal, the girls went on to finish college. My son CD third finished college, so This little boy has been an inspiration to me. And if he hadn't done anything else in the world, it gave me him. And thank God for him today because we enjoy doing things together. Let me tell you a little bit more about it. I've been sober for almost five years. And I came in one morning, and this is for a point. I came in one morning and I ate eggs and bacon for breakfast. And I took the fork and I hit the egg. And the egg did not run. I said, I don't eat a done egg. Except I, I used another adjective in
1: it. <laughs>
0: she said, Let me tell you something. Just cause you are sober, me and these girls aren't going like to pussyfoot around this house, bound and scraping to you now. If you want to get drunk, you go out the door and get drunk. That, that, that's what you want to do. I said, Let me tell you one thing, woman. You're not going to get me drunk. So for the next seven years, I ate breakfast uptown. <laughs> Now this has a point. Now, the reason I only—if you run into a brick wall, back up and go around the damn thing. You know, don't sit there and beat your head against it. I tried to eat butter out right a year or two ago. It doesn't work good. She's the sweetest thing in the world at night, but not in the morning. And I have to get away from her. You know, I get up and get take takes a cup of coffee to her bed every morning of my life. If I'm in town, I take her a cup of coffee to her bed, and I go there in my car and leave. I right <laughs> hey, I'm through. Nothing you said. Nothing you've done. Yet that's just the way it is. Boom. Go, you know. (laughs) Since coming in Alcoholics Anonymous, everything in the world has happened to me, and this woman can happen to anybody else, I guess, in in this world. And let me and I pass this on to you myself. It's most important. We've had all the trouble that anybody else has in the world. I wouldn't swap trouble to anybody, but we've had a world of it. We've had money trouble, job trouble, child trouble. This son of mine, CD the third, was born while I was in Korea. He discovered looking women at the same time and went completely nuts. You know caused me an awful lot of trouble. And I tell Ida this, if you breed a bull and a heifer, you're not going to get anything better than a bull and a heifer. Now you think about that. So I've looked at my own children, and I thought they ought to do thus and so, but they're like Ida themselves. So I have to look at my son, and every time I look at him, I see me. And this will tell you completely out of the frame. This boy finished college last year and attempted suicide. He'd been out of school 30 days. through to a love affair. He attempted suicide. And out of myself, he shot himself with well, a 32 pistol, stuck it yeah. right at his heart and pulled the trigger, went clean through and bounced out, and he locked himself <laughs> in his apartment. He come to and got up and called him. The ambulance on the phone, they come, and got him. They called me. I was in Savannah, Georgia, my office, and told me they'd bring my son down. They said, if he makes it to Savannah, he might live. And I saw him roll him in there. But the reason I tell you this is not out of any sympathy, but to tell you what the AA program will do for you. And I heard this early in my AA career. The AA program is guaranteed to work under all conditions. Were it not, it would not be worth a damn. I had a man tell me this my first year in A by the name of Tom P, in Chappaqua, New York. Out of all the problems we've had, I've never entertained the idea of returning to the bottle one time. My only solution, and I pass this on to you for whatever it was, when things like this happen to me and I feel like I cannot go on, I, do this. I walk into my bedroom or wherever I happen to be and I fall on my knees and I ask God to help me. And it has never failed, ladies and gentlemen, yet. It is never failing. It never will. Because every time I have ever prayed in desperation, I got an answer. Not that the problem was going to be solved, but I got a relief knowing that it was going to work out. And this is what's happened to me in our hearts mind.
1: This woman that I wish
0: was here tonight where you could see her, she's a beautiful creature. And I love the ground the woman walks on. And yet, I liquor drinking and the things I had done, that had destroyed everything. If they had not given me anything other than her love, back it would be worth it all. But God has given me so much more than that. It's given me a new way to live. It's given me friends beyond my wildest dreams. I travel a length and breadth of this country and met people just like you are who says, CD, we're glad to see you and we love you. We're glad you're here. God, what a great feeling that is. That's great. That's great. I don't have anything in the way of money or property to leave to my children. I have nothing. I have a decent job I can walk down the street unashamed and unafraid. I can walk in a bank now, which is quite a for me,
1: <laughs>
0: and go in and look it. But I don't have anything in, in else to leave other than you know, a way of life. And if I had nothing else other than this, I would like to bequeath the A legacy, the way of life to my children, as a way to live. As a way to live. Because it gives you everything in the world you need. Through this program, I found love and understanding beyond my wildest dreams. I think a lot of people equate. We see so much about love in papers and magazines. Now, you equate it with sex. It has absolutely nothing to do. The fact that I can walk in John Mooney's office. I was in there the other day. He and Dot were talking to him. And I, I looked I said, Dot, I love you, and I always have loved you, and I always will love you. And I looked over Old Mooney, and I said, John, I love you, too, and you know it. And tears run down his cheeks and fell on the floor. It tore him up. I hadn't told him lately I loved him. I wanted him to know the way I feel about it. And this is the way we feel. I was going to Atlanta about three or four years ago on in the interstate. My wife had gone to Louisiana to be one of our daughters who would having a child. And I was going up the interstate with another man's wife. We were going to a, a. convention. And I heard this horn going behind me. Boop, 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 boop. And I thought, who does that nut look like? Big white Cadillac. I finally kept going, kept going. Most of them I pulled over and stopped. And there's a guy from Miami, far some of you know it, by the name of Josh H., he stopped that big white Cadillac and got out, me and him both went out and grabbed each other in the middle of it. I said, and if I was hugging out now, I bet somebody I said, say, look at you two queers in the middle of They wouldn't understand, but I tell you because you understand what I'm talking about. This guy loves me and I love him, see. And we had spent three years together. He was in Statesboro, Georgia. And this is what it's all about, really. The fact that we love one another and we love and care for one another. This is the greatest thing. What other mark can we make in the world other than love and say, I care about you. And I hope you can stay sober when things work out for you. What else can we do for an individual of Money doesn't mean a damn thing to me, no more. Long as I got enough to eat and a place to sleep, and I have that, and the good Lord has smiled on me in that way. I still fly for the National Guard. I got that back. I'm flying helicopters now. So last weekend, as everybody said, I was crazy, and I agree with them. I'm crazy, you know, to learn to fly a helicopter at my age, but I did. And I'm enjoying it. It's all part of my living, and I enjoy it. I take John up anything. I take everybody if I'm not supposed to, but I do, you know. I thoroughly really enjoy it. But to tell you people that and I'm glad I'm here and that I'm glad I'm number one on the program, I really mean that. because after that, I sit down and look. I'm going to enjoy this thing from here on out. Now, let me tell you one thing. I love you, and I always will love all you all. And if you come through Statesboro, Georgia, stop and ask the police where CD is. They know where I am. <laughs> ask the police. I don't sure if I ask the police. They all know me. The police and the judges, they know me. Because I'm and out a lot. And don't ever call me on the phone and say, come talk to me in Kentucky or wherever you happen to be." because CD will certainly come. I've enjoyed it, and I love every one of you very much. Thank you.